Richard, the last time we were together, the music you played was by Jeanette, and it was driving me nuts who I thought it was. And the artist who I thought it was, the singer I thought it was, is from around the same time. Margot Gurion, G-U-R-Y-A-N. And I know that if you like Jeanette, you will love Margot Gurion. I'm not familiar with her, so I'll look it up. (laughs) Sweet. Live from the Nightmare of Want, this is Hell... The Cold War was just that, cold. If you go online and search how many lives were lost due to the Cold War, you'll find plenty of writing asking whether any lives were lost in the Cold War at all, if anyone died whatsoever. Some studies say around 400 people died in total. Others have the numbers in the millions, and that doesn't count any of the hot wars in Korea, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, or anywhere the United States was allegedly fighting against Soviet influence. But that's one of the problems, how much the Soviets were involved in any of the countries the U.S. violently crushed communism is very much open to debate, as the communist and socialist movements the U.S. and their in-country authoritarian allies brutally destroyed, including in Indonesia, where they literally executed, murdered an entire political movement and idea, were very much homegrown movements with little to no motivation from the Soviets or Mao's China or Castro's Cuba. It was this cruel mass murder approach to communism around the world that made the United States victorious following the Cold War, with the U.S. having put in place a network of dictatorships that continue to suppress political dissent today as loyal U.S. allies. Except that assumes the Cold War and with those authoritar- is over, and with those authoritarian leaders still in power. The Cold War really never ended. We'll learn how the U.S. won the Cold War, what benefits were reaped from the war, and how that victory, which we call globalization, is actually just planetary Americanization. When we speak in a few minutes with award-winning journalist and correspondent Vincent Bevins, author of The Jakarta Method, Washington's anti-communist crusade, and the mass murder program that shaped our world, Vincent covered Southeast Asia for the Washington Post, reporting from across the entire region and paying special attention to the legacy of the 1965 massacre in Indonesia. He previously served as the Brazil correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, also covering nearby parts of South America and Before that, he worked for the Financial Times in London. The Jakarta Method has received praise from past This Is Hell guests, including Greg Grandin, Stephen Kinzer, Glenn Greenwald, and Robert Shear. We want to thank the listeners who suggested we have Vincent on the show, including Jack B., who was seconded in his suggestion by Adam B., but no relation. And I'm certain that there are many, many more of you because... Producer Alex says it's the most suggested book ever here on This Is Hell to be featured on the show. You can follow Vincent on Twitter at Vincent, that's with two N's, V-I-N-N-C-E-N-T, I guess three N's then. Find out more about Vincent's writing, including the Jakarta Method, at Vincent Bevins 
Com. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing this morning's show. Well, if it's Wednesday, it must be Richard Norwood. Richard, what's new by you? Oh, not a whole lot. I guess uh, we didn't talk about it last week. But what's that? The, uh, I had basically zero side effects from my second shot. So That's crazy. See, it's not working. It's only effective if you're in incredible pain afterwards. <laughs> so Alex had the exact same thing. Absolutely no side effects. My niece... I mean, I really... I mean, I had like such small amounts that I... And compared to everybody else, I rounded down to zero. So My niece is still aching like four or five days afterwards. Right. It's just crazy. So it's even got worse. I, I think it's the Mertz gene. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which is a very faulty gene, as you can probably imagine. How's that table working out for you? It's working out great. Uh, I'm a little bit uh, I'm worried about, see, this is a problem that we had at the old studio, right? If you pound on the table, uh, you get that sound. Well, I meant the little side table. but Oh, that one too. <laughs> both. Both are okay. This one isn't falling over. Uh, but And then I remember we got the same problem at NUR. Anytime right. you would, Michael Roper of the Hop Leaf, when he would come in and talk about beer, it was always like, <laughs> This ale, you must try this ale. Nice. Hey, I did want to ask you about your uh, uh, little nightlight project. What's that? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, we haven't gotten around to that. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll share that nightlight project. <laughs> oh, crazy gift I got from my girlfriend a couple of Christmases ago. I'll tell you about that in a bit. So I came over to the bar on Monday night to feed the feral-ish bar cat, Mel, Richard, and Mel was waiting on a bar stool, and as soon as I entered, as he usually does, Mel just screams at me really loudly to feed him. But he immediately went back to staring at an unattended baby stroller, a perambulator, a pram, if you will. As I headed outside to feed him, Mel followed as he usually does, but he kept stopping and staring back at that pram, like he was freaked out about something in that baby stroller. So I opened the door to the beer garden, Mel runs out, we walk by two customers who I did not know, Mel passed them and then stopped dead in his tracks like he was doing his job, which is hunting rats. And I thought for sure he had spotted a rat because on Sunday night he apparently killed four. And in the arms of one of the two new customers was a duck. Yes, this couple has a pet duck, which they push around the city in a baby stroller. Apparently it's a breed of duck that is used to attract other ducks during duck hunting season. The duck is essentially a traitor. A duck call. However, that's the female of the breed. So these people got the male, which cannot be used for hunting because it cannot quack as loud, but that's good for owning a duck in an apartment in Chicago. I swear to God, you never know who or what you will run into at Carrie's Lounge, including feral-ish cats and ducks, and baby strollers, and rat heads strewn around the beer garden. But more importantly than any of that, Richard, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what about this pandemic are you going to be nostalgic about <laughs> next pandemic? And the, this one's far too easy. <laughs> is it for you, you mean? Your mama. <laughs> And these nuts. <laughs> Those are the two most popular answers to our question from hell, unfortunately. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. 
So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show, tomorrow's show, when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff processes his reaction to the greatest cosmic blunder. Richard, will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Again, what about this pandemic are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic following our guest? As expected, we are getting a lot of responses to our interview from earlier this week with economist James Kenneth Galbraith on modern monetary theory. Some responses were posted on listeners' own social media timelines and feeds. Others were emailed to us, and we have asked them all to add their comments to the This Is Hell Facebook post where we shared the interview with James. Listener Dan said he will post what he sent us, and I think he already has. And past guest Remy Debs Bruno left a long and very informative post on MMT. You may remember Remy uh, being on the show last year with Medway Baker when they talked about their Cosmonaut article, The End of the End of History, COVID-19 and 21st Century Fascism for Cosmonaut again. Uh, If you want to get in on that discussion about MMT, Modern Monetary Theory, or see how other listeners are reacting, go to our Facebook page and scroll down to Monday's interview with James Kenneth Galbraith and dig in. Both Dan and Debs left very, very thoughtful messages and comments, and they're worth reading to maybe help you in your understanding of and maybe questions about MMT. Listener Tom, who often sends excellent guest suggestions, has another. Tom writes, Hi Chuck, hi Alex, hi everyone. Thanks for continuing to to produce such high-caliber interviews during the pandemic, not to mention all the other various global, economic, ecological, social justice, geopolitical crises we are all currently in the midst of. FYI, I happened upon a newly published book by Matthew Lawrence and uh, Lori Laybourne Langton, who I believe would be compelling guests on This Is Hell. So the book is Planet on Fire, a radical manifesto for how to deal with environmental breakdown. It's from Verso Books, naturally, and their site describes Planet on Fire as uh, in the age of environmental breakdown, the political status quo has no answer to the devastating and inequitably distributed consequences of the climate emergency. We urgently need an alternative to bring about the rapid transformation of our social and economic systems as we rebuild our lives in the wake of COVID-19 and face the challenges of ecological disaster. How can the left win a world fit for life? This book offers a clear and practical roadmap for a future that is democratic and sustainable by design. Planet on Fire is an urgent manifesto. So, Tom writes, thanks again. Cheers, Tom. All sounds great, but man, am I leery of manifestos. Ever since we uh, spoke back in mid-February with Keller Easterling about her book, Medium Design, Knowing How to Work on the World, she mentioned the mistake of manifestos and how they are limiting and that they are often perceived as set in stone, something to defend a potential dead end of political imagination, which is weird because Planet of Fire sounds... Like, it's all about expanding our political imagination to other alternatives, which means, you know, we'll look into this one a bit more, Tom. But I got to tell you, I'm suspicious of anything and anyone who calls anything a manifesto. For those of you playing at home, this is not a critique of the Communist Manifesto per se, but declarations that almost come off as prescriptions that need to be followed or else they just kind of make me skeptical. 
We also got an email at chuckatthisishell.com from Andrew, who writes, Hi, Chuck and Hellions. Greetings from Orange County, California, where good old Republicans go to die and then live again and then die from COVID once more. I appreciated your name check of Catherine Liu, author of the new book, Virtue Hoarders, The Case Against the Professional Managerial Class, and do look forward to hearing her discuss, argue her terrific polemic on the odious professional managerial class. You might also consider the co-authors of the Higher Ed Labor piece at the American Association of University Professors website titled, A New Deal for College Teachers and Teaching Faculty and Teaching. Faculty Equity Equals Student Success by Maya McIver and Traver Gaffney, a terrific article which does so much in just a few pages to illustrate the precarious and unjust labor practices at public higher education institutions. I'm so proud of my own union leadership that they have taken on an aggressively left stand against the tedious Arnie Duncan, Obama Department of Education policies. Thanks. Love the show. Drinking my coffee this morning from my This Is Hell tin cup. In every kind of solidarity, Andrew and you too can get it. This is Hell Tin Camping Coffee Cup by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. The article uh, Andrew sends uh, states that the campaign for a new deal for higher education in the United States must address the fact that more than two-thirds of faculty members in higher education today are temporary employees. Without decisive action to change the direction in which our system is moving, the U.S. higher education system is likely to get worse rather than better. After five decades of decline, we still don't know where the bottom is, or if there is one. So thanks, Andrew. And this is a topic that listeners have been asking us to cover for quite some time. So I forwarded it to Alex, and hopefully we'll have Maya McIver and Trevor Gaffney on soon to talk about their writing, A New Deal for College, Teachers, and Teaching. You can email us too at this is Chuck at thisishell.com. DM us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy, this is hell. Coming up, the brutal truth about the mass murder that we call the Cold War. And we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what about the pandemic are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? We'll also tell you who is going to be on tomorrow's show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live streaming, podcast host Chuck Mertz, producing Richard Norwood, live from the United States, where property has more rights than people. This is hell. The Cold War was deadly. It was brutal. It was mass murder on a global scale. And it was won by the United States, leaving behind an empire that we call globalization, but what can better be described as global Americanization. Here to help us understand the way in which the United States became the world's sole superpower, award-winning journalist and correspondent Vincent Bevins is author of The Jakarta Method, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade and the Mass Murder Program, that shaped our world. Welcome to This Is Hell, Vincent. Thank you very much for having me. You can follow Vincent on Twitter <laughs> at Vincent. That's with three N's. It's kind of complicated. V-I-N-N-C-E-N-T. And you can find out more about Vincent's writing, including the Jakarta Method, at Vincent Bevins. Again, we want to thank listeners Jack B., Adam B., and everybody who suggested Vincent be a guest on our show. I'll ask you a kind of, I guess, probably the best question to start at. How cold was the Cold War? Uh, it was cold in uh, Washington, D.C. and Moscow, uh, mostly, and New York, um, the place where sort of the places where most of the English language uh, writers about the Cold War lived. You know, the eastern United States uh, remained quite cold. Um, but now if you look at the 
what was called at the time the third world. Um, and and I should hasten to add that the third world was never a derogatory term. Um, then it was it was the name of a, a forward looking and optimistic project. Um, spread across the post-colonial world, so uh, Africa, Asia, South America. Uh, the, the war was very far from, from cold. Um, there were hot wars with artillery and guns and bombs. And then there was the intentional mass murder of civilians for being leftist or um, being accused of being leftist. Uh, and that's what my book is about. Um, the Jakarta Method is, is this tactic that I believe is in... Um, is a misunderstood and underappreciated part of the construction of U.S. hegemony, um, the, the, the intentional mass murder of leftists. I was really shocked when I was doing just a little bit of research to find out. I wanted to have a number of the people who were killed in the Cold War. And I was really shocked when I put in that question into Google. And there are so many articles that came back saying, did anyone die in the Cold War? And then some studies saying around 400 people died in the war. And then other studies saying six or seven million people died in the Cold War. Why do you think it is that we don't have a good understanding of what the casualties of the Cold War were? Um, I put a question like this. I'm, I'm not going to answer for myself, but I, I put a question like this to one of the heroes of, of my book or one of the, the people um, that is, whose story is told in it. Um, why was there sort of a different standard for the things that happened in Western Europe and North America from everywhere else? And she answered very quickly, racism. Um, this was a woman that grew up under the Dutch colony in the, uh, the, the Dutch East Indies, right? So she drew, grew up under apartheid. Uh, conditions. And so she understood very well that the world had been shaped by racist colonialism. And she thought that the events of the 20th century reflected a continuation of that type of that colonialism. She probably would have called it neocolonialism. Um, if I answer for myself, um, I don't think not that she, I, my answer is hugely different than hers. Uh, I think that if you delineate the Cold War um, very strictly as what happened between the United States and the Soviet Union, or even if you maybe expand it to sort of the Berlin Wall, yeah, you get very a very few number of people. Um, the leaders of these countries didn't want to go to war, and so they didn't. Um, but they did uh, uh, make um, vast use of, of violence elsewhere, where traditionally uh, there was less media coverage. And uh, when there was coverage, there was often celebration um, of the elimination of people perceived to be enemies of the growing U.S.-led global order. I... Uh... I want to get to that media coverage in just a moment, but you mentioned racism. To what extent, and and, and to what extent is this an oversimplification? That uh, was the Cold War a race war? Uh, I don't think it was a race war, but I think um, that the decision-making processes um, in Washington, but also in other, many other places around the world, were were shaped by perceptions of race, and and we have pretty good evidence of this. Um, I mentioned the the Third World Movement, um, uh, which really came into its own at a conference in Indonesia in 1955 called uh, the Bandung Conference, when President Sukarno, the first leader of the young nation that had fought for its independence from the Dutch, um, organized a, a meeting of the world's post-colonial peoples. Um, the, the term that was used in, within the State Department to dismiss the Bandung Conference in 1955, I would not want to repeat uh, on this show now. So we certainly have evidence that racism affected um, the, the policymaking decisions of Washington in the Cold War. I mean, how could it not, right? I mean, the United States in the 1950s and the 1960s had one set of laws um, for white 
non-white peoples in certain parts of the country and and the Indonesians or or South Americans or Southeast Asians that I met in the course of this book, um, researching uh, the Jakarta method, people that lived through this era, the 50s and 60s and 70s, that really remembered what the, the dream of the Cold War was and remembered the moment that it became clear that the United States was going to be the most important power on the globe. It was very clear to them that the United States was a racist power, at least had been founded through racism. They they had lived through colonialism, um, but they had kicked out their colonizers. They had taken back over um, their countries and were speaking languages that were from their own nation. They looked over at the United States and said, oh, well, that's a country like ours, except for the colonizers killed a huge amount of the locals and then imposed their own system and language. Um, so, so I think when, when discussing the first half of the 20th century, you, 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 can't, you can't take racism out of the equation. So to what extent has the Cold War disappeared, if you will, from history? Because it had also disappeared from the present as it happened. Because it reminds me of how little frontline war reporting uh, and how that has disappeared from U.S. TV news coverage since the Gulf War began 30 years ago this August. And it makes me wonder how much we are currently engaging in that exact same kind of erasing of history by erasing the present. So has the slaughter in Indonesia, for instance, disappeared from history because it had also disappeared from the present as it happened? Yeah, I mean, this was one, I mean, this was why I felt, I mean, this is this is not sort of a, an issue that I had been looking, looking for uh, a reason to write about. Um, I was just in Southeast Asia trying to do my job uh, at, in a new posting. But um, when I realized the extent to which the 1965 mass murder of approximately 1 million innocent civilians um, had been forgotten in the English-speaking world, that's when I, I thought, okay, really, I got to find a, a, a new way to come at this. And, and I should be very clear that um, it was not gone, gone. Uh, I, my work was only possible because of the heroic research and, and activism carried out by generations of academics or, or, or family members and activists within Indonesia but in the like broader mainstream narrative of the 20th century um, that people in the English speaking uh, North Atlantic have, it was pretty much gone. <laughs> um, and this happened pretty quickly afterwards um, for a couple of reasons. Um, the, even though Indonesia was considered a more important prize for the United States government than Vietnam in the early 60s, um, when the flip happened, when 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 the the victory, uh, at least according to the um, perceived goals of U.S. Pol policymakers at the time, when that victory was complete, a lot of the tension immediately moved to Vietnam, where things were more complicated because they weren't going well. So what I argue in the introduction to the book is that it is precisely because this was such a horrible and complete success that people stopped talking about it almost immediately. And it was uh, precisely because it was such a horrible and complete success that the government that took over in Indonesia, the US-backed Suharto dictatorship, was able to basically keep the truth suppressed in that country. Now it's still to this day illegal to say anything that can be construed as a defense of the unarmed communist party, which was massacred. So, so there are still sort of very material reasons why um, this story can't be told. Yeah, you mentioned a story about how you go to a conference that's going to be discussing what happened in 1965, and you have a ton of protesters out there being incredibly violent, anti-communists on the streets, and it's a very frightening story. So was the U.S. successful 
in well because you write the dictatorship in Brazil uh, following the uh, situation in India currently the world's fifth most popular populous country played a crucial role in pushing the rest of South America into the pro Washington anti-communist group of nations in both countries the Soviet Union was barely involved was the US successful in the Cold War because the Soviet Union was barely involved um well I think that sort of it's a question so that's a chicken and egg problem right so right. The when World War II ended, um, Stalin, who is of course not shy about using violence, you know, um, realized because he's a very pragmatic and sort of you know uh, uh, you know to the point of you know murderous pragmatism at times, realized that he was much less powerful than the United States. That he had lost millions of people in in World War II. The United States had far more. Uh, economic power, and basically all Soviet leaders, um, despite their own personal ideological inclinations, realized this. There was no point at which anyone in the Soviet Union actually thought they could take the United States in any way whatsoever. So um, while they were often very assertive, and that's putting it mildly, in, in parts of the world where they had real control, in parts of the world where they considered it sort of the United States' backyard or um, sensitive territory, they would be. They were very hesitant to 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 cause problems because they did not want to cause a U.S. reaction. Their their view of what the U.S. Um, was like uh, was often that if you provoke them a little, they might really overreact and cause a lot of problems for us. So in, in Latin America, Soviet Union very often tried not to cause problems. Uh, in the case of Indonesia, in the final years before um, the mass murder of the Indonesian Communist Party, which was the largest party outside of the Soviet Union in China. They wanted very little to do with um, their campaigns uh, in Southeast Asia, and they did nothing basically um, when they were murdered, um, except for issues from very mild denunciations, but they didn't want to make waves. Now, um, could they have done something differently? I don't really know. But um, they were they were they were in second they were in a, uh, they were way behind in second place from the very start, uh, and that never really changed. So, so the, a lot of the left wing movements around the world understood this. Uh, a lot of people in uh, Western Europe understood this. But it was an intentional strategy of the U.S. government, starting with Truman, to tell the U.S. the the people of the United States something different, which was to intentionally make people as scared as possible of uh, the Soviet Union in order to justify the ways that they wanted to confront them, even though the confrontation often happened um, uh, uh, with other people involved rather than actual Soviets. And I apologize for asking a yes or no question, but so was the uh, U.S. during the Cold War using the Cold War as cover to overthrow governments that did not support the U.S. more than they were fighting Soviet influence? Uh, I think cover is an interesting way to put it. I think that's sort of right. I think it's I think it's sort of like it's more that the United States had intermixed and overlapping goals. Um, and sometimes uh, the, the goal was more geopolitics, sort of to make sure that a certain part of the world stayed in Western or freedom-loving hands, and other times there were more direct material interests. Um, large U.S. companies would have would often put pressure on uh, the United States to carry out certain foreign policy objectives, and in those cases, you could sort of use grab a little bit from column A to justify a little bit from column B. Uh, when you have a lot of things in column A and column B, it's quite likely that the U.S. is going to act. So, so you had. Um, a mix of motivations, which usually work to reinforce each other. And uh, 
You mentioned, uh, well, why, why didn't the United States just apply what they had learned from Indonesia, from the mass murder of 1.1 million political dissidents, from the mass murder of the entire PKI Communist Party in Indonesia? Why didn't, they, why didn't the United States learn from that and then try to apply the exact same uh, strategy against Vietnam? Oh well, well. The, so why didn't why couldn't you have the the Jakarta method in in, in Indochina? Um, yeah. So because the the Viet Minh, uh, which later you know became the the government of of, of North Vietnam, um, was a very well organized and armed fighting force, right? So so there was there was a war that had been going on uh, in Vietnam from 1945 until the U.S. got more directly involved. Um, so you would have never been able to sort of do what the um, the Indonesian military did, which is just to go around and arrest unsuspecting civilians and then murder them. The, the, the government of North Vietnam was this armed movement, which, which became a state. Um, and the um, opponents in the south of the, the, the other uh, government that was formed after the referendum was called off um, that was supposed to decide on the reunification of Vietnam was also an armed movement. So it was the short answer is because the Indonesians weren't expecting it. You also point out that uh, this led, you know, the PKI, they were trying to react in a nonviolent way to the dictatorship. And then they became, they were slaughtered. Did the brutality of Cold War violence destroy nonviolence as a successful political strategy. After all, look at how many of its practitioners have been assassinated since the Cold War began. So this is something, this is a another part of the story that I think is underappreciated. Um, the story of the intentional mass murder of, of leftists in the Cold War doesn't start in 1965. This is, this is the, the apex of the story, but probably the first time it happens is in 1954 after the U.S. Um, overthrows the the um, the government of Hakobarbins in Guatemala. After this happens, uh, U.S. officials reportedly instructed the new military leaders that they needed to kill people that they consider to be communists. Now, one part of the story, which becomes relevant again in the Cold War history, is that Che Guevara was in Guatemala. Um, and there had been elements uh, of the left in Guatemala saying, no, President Arbenz should not give up. Um, he should arm the people. They should mount an armed resistance. Uh, the United States is going to destroy uh, this country if you if you let their um, if you let their sort of counter revolutionary regime take power. So Che believed that he was right. Now we can we can step back and decide whether or not uh, we we like the consequences of that analysis, but I think we could see why he came to it. Right, and and so when Cuba. Um, uh, when Fidel and, and Che and uh, the rest of the revolutionaries uh, overthrew the Batista regime in Cuba, they thought the United States was going to come for them. Um, che thought he had learned a lesson in 1954. Uh, if you try any kind of uh, nonviolent social reform in Latin America, the United States will, will crush you. So you better be defensive uh, and strictly organized and violent. Now, I tell this story because uh, it's it has characters that people sort of know about, you know, people know about uh, Fidel and, and Che and, and, and what happened in Cuba and Guatemala, but this happened all the time in the Cold War. You know, you can point to many, many times when there were movements that had a strategy which was to be electoral and nonviolent and moderate, and then they see somewhere else a horrible massacre, 
and they decide actually this doesn't work. Uh, the imperialists are coming for us. We need to be um, either self-defensive, if not dictatorial. And this really shapes the socialist movement in the 20th century. So in the case of Indonesia itself, back to 1965, the massacre of the largest unarmed socialist party in the world at the time, I think probably in history, absolutely convinced a lot of people, well, that path isn't going to work. So in addition to the real, the horrible massacre itself, you see a real perversion of all of the attempts uh, around the world to forge a more progressive um, vision of the future. And these are often visions of the future, which we would consider very obviously acceptable now. Um, they came to the conclusion that, 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 um, that you had to take up arms and be intensely self-defensive um, and sometimes with, 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 quite, with quite horrible consequences. And you write that, I don't, don't mean to jump ahead of ourselves too much here, but you write that, you know, the real losers of the Cold War were the true believers in liberal democracy. Now, post-Cold War, if you will, because I understand the, the, the lingering legacy of it. But do you, what impact do you think the Cold War has had on global faith, global belief in liberal democracy? Well, this is a this is an interesting question, and this is coming up again. The United States is sort of agitating to uh, confront China now, and um, regardless of what sort of independent, non-aligned uh, countries think of the regime in Beijing, a lot of them remember what happened last time. And this gap between what we in the English-speaking West remember about the Cold War versus what Filipinos and Chileans. Uh, remember about the Cold War is very big and I think it's going to be a source of policy problems for, for people in Washington over the next few years. But to try to answer quickly, I mean, I, I traced, I mean, this method that I, that I described in the book, I don't think is the only one employed in the construction of US capitalist hegemony in the 20th century. But I found that it was employed in at least 22 countries. Actually, uh, I added a 23rd for the paperback edition with came out, uh, which came out this week um, because there was something that I hadn't seen and someone came to me and said, oh, you have, have you talked to this ambassador? He wants to denounce this case of what Western governments did. Um, so in those countries, not only was the actual, the trauma, the people killed, the way that that kind of violence warps a society. You get the construction of the type of capitalist regime, which is founded on the violent exclusion of the left. And the difference between a capitalist country where there's sort of a, a liberal uh, a spectrum uh, of opinion, sort of you have, you have a liberal system when you have, okay, you have the left and the center left and the right and the far right. And, and people go back and when the government does, you know, makes a mistake and they go too far right, voters bring them back to the left. That, that's the kind of capitalism that was constructed in Western Europe and in the United States. In many of these other countries, what you have is a regime that is founded through the almost religious exclusion of anything that can, could be considered left-wing. So they construct a kind of capitalism when any kind of these sort of natural countervailing forces that you would hear about maybe in uh, you know, political science one or econ one, whenever they come up, they can be labeled as communist and, and smashed. And this creates a very different political system an economic system than one uh, than the one that sort of um, uh, believers in the free world and the free market uh, espouse uh, back in uh, back in the West. We are speaking with award-winning journalist and correspondent Vincent Bevins, author of the Jakarta Method. Washington's anti-communist crusade and the mass murder program that shaped our world. You can follow Vincent on Twitter at V-I-N-N-C-E-N-T. And you can find out more about Vincent's writing, including the Jakarta Method, at Vincent Bevins. 
Economist.com. You mentioned economist Branko Milanovic and his short essay for Whom the Wall Fell. You write how Milanovic looked at post-communist countries in 2014. Some countries still have smaller economies than they did in 1990 when the wall fell and there was the promise of capitalist wealth. Some economies have grown slower than their Western European neighbors, meaning they are falling further and further behind even from the low point in 1990 when the collapse of their system cut down the size of their economies. He finds only five real capitalist success cases, Albania, Poland, Belarus, Armenia, and Estonia, which have been somehow catching up with the first world. Only three are democracies, which means Milanovic calculates that only 10% of the population of the former communist world in Eastern Europe got what they were promised when they tore the wall down. Broken promises is a huge part of U.S. history, whether it's treaties with the indigenous or the unfulfilled promise of the Cold War bringing democracy or the unfulfilled promise that Martin Luther King Jr. talked about in his 1962 speech or the unfulfilled promise of how great capitalism would be for Eastern Europe if the wall came down. you got to wonder, why does anyone believe U.S. promises anymore? And do you think that that age is ending? Uh, well, so this is a very, that's a very good way to pose that question. Because if we take the sort of uh, standardly, uh, the the generally accepted nomenclature, so hard power and soft power, I think a lot of our soft power is waning, but none of our hard power is, right? So, um, and that I think is a sort of explosive combination because especially since the war in Iraq um, and then the election of Donald Trump and then the pandemic and then sort of the way in which US society is very obviously riven with these bizarre um, um, contradictions. I think we are less credible, especially when we speak about things like human rights or democracy or freedom, but we still have way more guns than any, <laughs> like far, far more guns and weapons and, and uh, instruments of death than any society in the history of humanity. So um, I think that despite our very effective sort of uh, ideological state apparatuses, if you want to use a that old term, uh, Hollywood and media, which sort of, you know, not through sort of some in, some conspiracy, just sort of naturally reproduce the things that we sort of believe about America and American values, even though that is a very effective um, vehicle for transmitting our idea of ourself to the world. I think it is less credible now than it was 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. Um, but the other source of our power, the fact that we can threaten you with crippling sanctions or bomb your country back into the Stone Age, as some people actually say out loud, um, that's not going away. And, 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 and as I say, that divergence between uh, so our, our, our credibility, um, our rhetorical, our credibility as vehicles of freedom, but our credibility as deliverers of, of death and violence, I think is, 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 is troubling. I couldn't help but think that this is a continuation of you know, American policy, whatever you want to call it, since you know 1492, did the U.S. become the world's single superpower through mass murder? And what impact do you think the history of indigenous genocide or the influence that had on any justification of mass murder to attain that power? Yes, I, I think I think short answer is yes. And this was another moment where I mean, I learned so much from the people that I met over the three years that I reported this book. Um, Went around to 12 countries, largely speaking through people that remembered what the 50s and 60s and 70s were like in their in their countries, and the way that they viewed the United States. And it wasn't, you know, they weren't trying to be edgy, they weren't trying to be confrontational, just in a very matter-of-fact way. They said, Well, yeah, but that country was founded on racist genocide, so we had to be careful with them. And and it was like it was something they were used to dealing with. This was not 
they were, this wasn't like shock pulling, you know, the wool away from their eyes. They had grown up under direct colonial rule. And they looked over to the United States and, and you know, th they could get Westerns. They knew what Westerns were about. They, they, they understood that in those Westerns, the white people were celebrating killing the brown natives, which was what they were in, 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 in Indonesia or, or Vietnam or, or wherever else I was, I was doing the reporting. And it was very natural for them to connect U.S. behavior on the global stage with the way that the United States was founded. It was, it was entirely uncontroversial. I think that's right. Um, I think that the legacy of settler colonialism in U.S. history creates a sort of ideological space um, in the white uh, mind for excluded, vulnerable, and basically subhuman populations that can be, you know, you can fill it up with whatever group you want. Um, for a large part of U.S. history, um, it was indigenous people that were considered part of that category over there where it really didn't count whatever you did to them. And then for a large part of U.S. history, arguably, in some ways until today, the descendants of, of African uh, um, peoples were, were slotted into that category. And I think in the, in, the, in the Cold War, communists were slotted into that category. And you had some people explicitly say that, that, well, it doesn't really matter as long as it's communists. Uh, that doesn't count if they're being murdered. Um, and I think that category, the ease with which we slot people into the subhuman vulnerable, doesn't count um, 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 sort of mental space, this, this, this uh, 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 racial or ideological categorization is a legacy of settler colonialism. So what would recognition of the brutality of the U.S.-supported dictatorship in Indonesia to oust the world's third largest communist party, a party that did not have that much help from the Soviet Union or China, what impact would that recognition have on people's belief in American exceptionalism and the perception of superiority by the United States? It's an interesting one because all these things are sort of not really hidden, right? I mean, you, right. Could, you could look up the Wikipedia like, if you want to find out like the worst things that the United States did in the Cold War, you can just Google sort of MK Ultra, <laughs> the CIA mind control program where they're kidnap kidnapping people on the streets of the United States and performing experiments on them or you know, torturing prisoners of war to death around the world. All that's there. It's just sort of not really upfront, right? So if Joe Biden were to say the United States apologizes for um, uh, the support for the extermination of the unarmed uh, 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 communists and um, accused communists in Indonesia 1965. I think that would do a lot in Indonesia because there would be sort of, um, the, the, the victims of that violence are still sort of have not been given the recognition of what happened to them, the recognition that what happened to them was wrong. Um, and I think that would do a lot of good. Uh, and during the reporting for this book in sort of a naive and sort of brash way, because the as a journalist, you get to sort of be intentionally stupid. I just called up the CIA and I said, okay, uh, your files from the early 60s are uh, unavailable. Can you give them to me? <laughs> uh, and they said, no, those are classified. We're not going to give them. We're not going to give them to you. But, um, you know, why? Why? Uh, and um, so I think that would do something for the people of Indonesia, that kind of recognition, that kind of honesty about of what it is that the United States government knows. Now, would it sort of shatter um, the image of the United States abroad, hopefully it would make it more, you know, hopefully it would be something that would make it <laughs> stronger. Hopefully it would be a moment where of, of, uh, of you know, uh, um, of increased credibility. 
but I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it seems to be, um, it seems to be, there's a fairly effective, uh, um, constellation of, of power structures that make these things sort of knowable if you really look, but not really ever front and center for, if you're a regular person. So you point out that, you know, people just, they kind of erase the cold war from their mind. They don't know that billions of lives, even to this day have been affected by the cold war. They don't, they view the cold war as something that ended and has no impact on today whatsoever. Do you think that denialism of how the United States so brutally became a global power makes us complicit in that brutality? Does not recognizing past brutalities mean a, a greater likelihood of allies committing brutalities at the behest of the U.S. in the future and to our personal benefit? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was, I mean, um, this we have evidence of this all the time in the 20th century that people that are deciding what to do uh, you know, right-wing groups, uh, allies of the U.S., potential allies of the U.S., when they're weighing their options, they often say, well, we know that the United States is not going to get us in trouble if we do this. We're Not only is it going to work, we're going to get away with it. And they look around the world and, and they came to that conclusion. They were absolutely right. Um, in some cases, we have sort of the receipts of the United States very explicitly helping to murder the innocent people. In other cases, uh, you can really come to the conclusion um, based on the 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 other government's discussions about their understanding of what the United States will and will not let them do. So the message that they got, that they interpreted correctly, was that, well, yeah, if you exterminate people that we consider our enemies, you're going to be fine. And not, not only are we, no one's going to bring it up, we're going to help you get away with it. And so I think that that dynamic does continue forever um, uh, 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 until 2021 and further on until it's changed. What explains to you the bipartisan, apparent U.S. bipartisan support for the political party that ends up sending bullies into the streets, terrorizing whoever they are dehumanizing at that moment in history? Why do both the supported, uh, supposed conservative and liberal parties in the United States support the far right around the world. Why don't we see, okay, uh, we have conservatives in power, so we see support for Jair Bolsonaro, and now we have liberals in power, and so we should have support for uh, former President Lula. You see some, you see some variation, right? And, and if you're a student of U.S. foreign policy in the 20th century, uh, you can spend a lot of time pointing to those variations, and they're very interesting. Jimmy Carter did some things that were different than the people that came before him and the people that came after him. But and that's very interesting, you know, if you're, you're spending time in the archives in D.C. But if you're Indonesian, it's the same. <laughs> if you're a Chilean, it's the same thing. If you're a Brazilian, it's the same thing. And um, the, the unity of U.S. foreign policy um, is important to understand because you can't really be that kind of a hegemon if you're flipping positions all the time every four years, right? So if you really are going to have a sort of neo-colonial or imperial or hegemonic, you know, pick whatever word you want based on your ideological flavor um, role in the world, you, you can't be making a deal with this dictator and then having the next guy come in four years later and say, actually, uh, we don't like dictators anymore. It just wouldn't work. So in the United States, um, we have a very advanced and sophisticated political system within which there are certain things that are considered properly political. Um, 
you know, uh, the subject of the discussion between the two parties up for debate, the things that we understand that when you have an election, they will, they will change uh, and things that are not. And a lot of, you know, it would be very hard to have a democracy which asked the people in a very meaningful way what to do about covert interventions in 180 countries around the world. I mean, it's just, and I think that sort of gets to the heart of the, the sort of contradiction between empire and democracy. A regular person in America has to live their regular, <laughs> have to live their lives, pay the wages, or sorry, pay the rent, uh, make money, take care of their families. Uh, the, the, if they were to put the question of how to deal with these vast, unending, sometimes secret, sometimes public interventions in almost every country in the world, that would be very hard to work. And so it's sort of structurally necessary that these things are taken off the table, I think, um, for this kind of hegemony to be, to be exercised. You point out the roots of this violent anti-communism within McCarthyism, and you. So McCarthyism was a winch. Well, it was a witch hunt, though, after communists who who no longer existed. They had existed, or people who had participated in communism in the past. That had happened. But what explains why the breed of anti-communism was not popular during communism's height in the U.S., but was suddenly all the rage after communism became a fiction? Because I can't stop wondering about in your writing of your book what that says about anti-communism as a force against a fiction, but not a reality. Well, one thing I think it's important to recognize about U.S. anti-communism um, is that two things are true at the same time. One, um, communist regimes and the Soviet Union's allies absolutely committed uh, horrible abuses around the world. The, if you look at what causes anti-communism in America, to rise and fall, it is not those things. It is not, it is not a response to the news of this or that um, tragedy in, in Ukraine or uh, in, in around Stalin's inner circle in the late 30s. The United States kicks up uh, uh, anti-communist activity immediately after the Soviet um, revolution in 1917, uh, joining in a small way to help over, to help sort of undo that revolution. And then after 1945, when the Soviet Union is seen as a competitor on the global stage, is seen as offering a very attractive model to many countries, especially uh, in the global south for rapid development, uh, seen as really an, an, an ideological and material ally, that's when it kicks back up again. Um, so, so it, domestically within the United States, there was absolutely communists involved in the 1930s and the early 40s. Uh, uh, they were, were operating very openly. They were not ashamed of what they were doing. Things flipped in 1945, not because anybody found out some new thing about how, many, how communism was bad. The, the, United, the Soviet Union became a geopolitical enemy for the state, for the government of the United States, which had its own interests um, and goals in, in shaping the post-war order. Just a couple more questions for you. You write the countries that chose or were forced onto paths into the American-led global capitalist system have stayed on them post-Cold War. The countries that did not often fell in, onto uh, similar paths in the past 25 years. Over that same time period, the world has undergone a process often called globalization. That term certainly caught on for a while. But for those who want to be truly accurate, a better word is Americanization. If it is Americanization, is the United States and are the people in the U.S. benefiting the most off of globalization? Because 
That's not what we're being told. And for many of us, that's not how it looks. So is globalization more of a benefit to the United States than any country in the world? So yes, but you have to break down uh, the, the United States into its various components and recognize that the people that make decisions at the governmental level and the, and the people that um, uh, benefit from the process of globalization are not the, the, the population as a whole, right? So the United States, I mean, this, and this is not sort of a radical leftist take, um, but this is, you know, the way that liberal political scientists understand the government as well, you know, powerful economic interests, have much more influence over the U.S. government or any other liberal democratic government than other people. So while the United States as a whole, as a nation state, if you were to pretend that everybody is in it together, has absolutely been a huge, um, um, has, has been hugely benefited by the process of U.S.-led uh, capitalist hegemony from 1945 to 1990 and, and even more so from 1990. <laughs> Uh, to 2021. But then if you break it down and look at how many people in the country actually got those benefits, it's very, it's a very small group, right? So you do have, you have poverty in the United States, which would be shocking to some people in Latin America, depending on where you go and where you look, because um, despite the nationalist rhetoric, the U.S. isn't really in it together. Um, there's a very diff big difference between the family of somebody um, that has a son or daughter sent off to war and the family of somebody that, uh, you know, uh, is profiting from the financialization of the global economy because they, they have so much capital um, uh, tied up in that pursuit. So it's, it's a weird, it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing to, it, it creates political problems because the, the, the fact is that the vast majority of Americans are in the top 5% of the richest people in the world, the vast majority. Um, but still, the, the benefits of this process that has been led by the state and other um, North Atlantic states are distributed are distributed wildly uh, uh, unequally, and so it's a mistake to really sort of to think of it as 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 a coherent nation state um, when it comes to the benefits of globalization. So I want to make sure we touch on this before we let you go, and I still have one more question for you after this. How do you see conspiracy theorizing as a result of the Cold War? So it's a good question. I think um, conspiracy theorizing, in the pejorative sense, the the um, need, the sort of instinct to try to form uh, a coherent narrative by connecting things which are not connected um, to make sense of the world uh, happens, and I think can be uh, unhealthy. Um, but it's also, I think, the inevitable consequence of a world in which actually insane conspiracies are happening all the time. So if you wanted people to stop coming up with crazy theories as to what powerful groups are doing behind the scenes, you should have the powerful groups stop doing crazy things behind the scenes. I mean, a lot of U.S. conspiracy culture was fueled by finding out what had actually happened um, uh, in the early days of the CIA. I mean, like I mentioned, MKUltra. Um, there were so many things that were truly incomprehensible that people just start flying off, <laughs> you know, trying to trying to guess what could happen now. And I think often the um, the wrong people are blamed for conspiracy theories um, because sometimes if you look back at what's happening, you know, you, you pick up a, a, a moment in Cold War history, the people that turns out were right about what was happening 
at the time were being called crazy conspiracy theories. Now, how do you resolve that, that tension? How do you resolve the, the, the fact that um, people can only guess as to what powerful shadowy groups are doing um, uh, 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 in hiding? Uh, you have to have full democracy and transparency about what's really happening in the world. You have to have, you know, stop having groups do evil things in secret or else you're, you're inevitably going to have this huge, I think, psychologically damaging uh, cognitive dissonance, cognitive distance, I'm sorry, between regular people and the people making, um, making the decisions. When a war intimately shapes lives, as you say the Cold War has done for billions, there are adverse outcomes among them, the normalization of violence and the PTSD that comes along with that perpetual decades-long violence. Do you think the Cold War made the forever war a return to normal? Did the Cold War normalize global war? And what impact do you think that had on the forever war, whether it's duration or the concept of a war on an idea, whether the idea was communism or a war on terrorism? So I think a good way to answer that question is to take an, an even bigger step back. So you've you've compared 1945 to 1990 with 1990 to 2021. Uh, if you step, step back and compare sort of 1776 to, to 2021, the United States has always been, always been engaged in some kind of militaristic, aggressive, um, expansionist or confrontational action that's it's just it's it seems to be hardwired into our dna and this point is not mine just like the the point that you mentioned um that i quite like that you did bring up the, the point that globalization is really americanization i got both of these points from adar Neverstad, who's a who's a very um respected and and certainly no uh radical a cold war historian and it's just like if you look at the united states this is always happening so you had the conquest of north america which took a very long time and was very violent then you have the movement uh, to overseas imperialism, direct overseas imperialism. Uh, Philippines, um, uh, 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 Cuba, Puerto Rico, this era. Uh, then you have two world wars in which, of course, they were neither were caused by the United States, but the United States um, managed to increase its power very uh, uh, successfully in those wars. Then you had the Cold War, where there was the constant confrontation of a Soviet Union, which did not really want to be in a confrontation with the United States, even, even the most... Um, even Stalin um, believed sort of the, the best thing for him was to wait and let the, the West fall apart on its own. And then you have, after the end of the Cold War, um, a war on terror, which is quite conveniently uh, not a group of people, but a, a concept, an activity that you can sort of take wherever you want and allows for this, this, this um, apparent instinctual uh, approach of the United States to be at war with somebody to continue. This has been a fascinating conversation, and the Cold War as a global war against equality is an, just an amazing framing of it. We have been speaking with award-winning journalist and correspondent Vincent Bevins, author of The Jakarta Method, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade, and the Mass Murder Program that Shaped Our World. You can follow Vincent on Twitter at V-I-N-N-C-E-N-T. You can find out more about Vincent at VincentBevins.com. One last question for you, Vincent, and as we do with all of our guests, we promise our final question. 
question is the question from hell. The question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience might hate your response. You quote FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover addressing the House Un-American Activities Committee, I think in 1954, saying, One thing is certain, the American progress which all good citizens seek, such as old age security, houses for veterans, child assistance, and a host of others is being deployed as window dressing by the communists to conceal their true aims and entrap gullible followers. The numerical strength of the party's enrolled membership is insignificant. For every party member, there are 10 others ready, willing, and able to do the party's work. There is no doubt as to where a real communist loyalty rests. Their allegiance is to Russia. Vincent, Russia, Russia, Russia. Do you think there is any lingering legacy here in the United States of anti-Russian attitudes left over from a decades-long Cold War not to excuse the actions of Vladimir Putin, not to excuse the actions of Joseph Stalin, but do you think that we have an exaggerated fear of Russia still to this day due to the Cold War? Yeah, I think it was an easy... Um, it was an easy slot to fill up again uh, <laughs> in 2017. Um, I have spent my entire career working in the, the liberal mainstream media. I hope to continue to do so. Um, but I think there was a real sort of inability to process the election of Donald Trump. Um, and in 2017, you saw in a very strange way this desire to just throw it back on some familiar old enemy. Not that, again, not that, not that Putin is a, a good guy or that he did nothing. Um, I think because everybody remembered those old movies about the bad guy and like Rocky, I don't even know which Rocky it is, but like, but because everybody remembered the Russians as the bad guys, it made it so easy for American liberal elites rather than for them to confront their own failures. Why do we lose an election? Why is America voting for this man? to throw everything back on the big bad Russian pulling, pulling the strings behind the scenes. And I went, you know, I went to Moscow several times. I was actually supposed to be, I was considering being a Russian correspondent, uh, a, a correspondent in Russia, sorry, before I went to Indonesia, I learned, I took some, a couple of uh, Russian classes in Sao Paulo. And I went to Russia in those years to ask like Russians and progressive Russians and correspondents in Moscow, what was going on. And they're like, God, oh, this is crazy. Like this is, this narrative's gotten out of hand, and these these people are no no fans of 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 Putin. So yeah, not only does the Cold War, in a very real way, continue to shape the, the country countries like Indonesia or Chile, um, the narratives we built about ourselves and built about other countries um, during that time period still sort of shape, I think, U.S. perceptions of the world in, in ways which are not always helpful. Vincent, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show today. This has been a really fantastic conversation. And your book, which again just came out in paperback, is The Jakarta Method, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade and the Mass Murder Program that Shaped Our World. Thank you, Vincent, for being on our show today. You can follow Vincent Bevins on Twitter at V-I-N-N-C-E-N-T and find out more about Vincent's writing at vincentbevins.com. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Take care. Bringing you... Bong, hitting journalism since 1996. This is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gaff-tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's, well, today's, today's show, today's show, 
is Richard Norwood. This week's question from hell is, what about this pandemic are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? What about this pandemic are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? By the way, if you liked our conversation with Vincent Bevins, please show your support for This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can find all of our merchandise as well as a direct link to our Patreon podcast subscription. You can listen to our exclusive Friday Patreon podcast every week at 10 a.m. Chicago Time podcast shortly after at the same place at patreon.com slash this is hell. And I'm going to be telling you who may be what classic interview may be featured on the show this Friday in just a bit. But before that, Richard, do you have any of our listeners responses to this week's question from hell? Yes, sir. I do. Sweet. So what are you, what, what about this pandemic? Are you going to be, going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? Pete V says, the biosphere. (laughs) That biosphere is really getting a lot of work. Adam A says, not a damn thing. (laughs) If this pandemic proved anything, it's that the more plagues change, the more paranoid, superstitious, wrong-headed, self-flagellating, ahistorical, uncircumspect jerks stay the same. (laughs) Nice read, Richard. I almost put in uncircumcised. In <laughs> I was I thought that that was going to happen actually. John B says church from my bathroom. <laughs> I guess he's worshiping the porcelain god. I guess. <laughs> Neil C says vaccines that weren't inactivated by cannabis. <laughs> Ben H. says, buying my first gun, buying my first bidet, and putting a pizza in the oven after it was delivered to sanitize it. (laughs) What the hell? I just don't want to know that somebody's using a bidet while they're handling their gun. (laughs) Or eating pizza for that matter. Exactly. What what about this pandemic? Are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? Jeffrey, oh sorry, Owen, says, relatively sound atmospheric conditions it's gonna be hot 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 too hot (laughs) and our jeffrey says the slow leisurely pace of mass death (laughs) that's what he's gonna miss nice david s says the laughs we had like when the president of the united states suggested ingesting disinfectant (laughs) those were some good times weren't they dan o says the nasal Q-tip test, which is far preferable to the test for the gastrovirus to come. <laughs> I believe he's referring to a colonoscopy. <laughs> what are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? Rob H. says the naivete that we'd unite as a nation or world to put aside profits long enough to keep everyone safe and get them vaccinated before things were rushed back to some faux normalcy. Yeah, the fact that we are all so in this together, I'm really going to miss that togetherness we had. Joel G says, hydroxychloroquine (laughs) and ingesting bleach. Sweet. Mason W says, the fascist president who isn't competent. (laughs) Just a few more. Ken P says, as an introvert, 
introvert who'd already worked from home for 15 years, everyone else had to adapt to living like me. <laughs> there was no pressure to go places and do things. It was heavenly, <laughs> except for all the dying. <laughs> <laughs> Which was kind of heavenly, if you think about it literally. What about this pandemic? Are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? Scott E. says, casual cruelty being normalized as though... You were simply picking which football team to become a fan of. Sweet. And last for today, Kim G says that one month ago, that one month when nature came back. <laughs> Again, this week's question, Mel, is what about the pandemic? Are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? What are you? What about this pandemic? Are you going to be nostalgic about next pandemic? The person with their favorite answer to this week's question, Mel, gets whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. All you have to do is go to thisishell.com and click on support to see all of our different pieces of swag. You can also go to thisishell.com and click on support and find a direct link to our Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday. Patreon.com slash this is hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. Richard, let's see. Uh, what else is what I want to mention? Okay, Richard, who is on tomorrow's show beginning at our normal time, 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com? Do you know? I do, but I don't have it right in front of me. Yeah, I have it. That's okay because I couldn't find it this morning. I had to do a little bit of digging. Uh, Dicking? Digging, too. Adolfo Minka uh, yes. is our guest on his article, Spirit of Self-Emancipation Continues to Rise at the St. Louis uh, City Justice Center for Black Agenda Report and a Moment of Truth from Jeff. During this week's moment, Jeff processes his reaction to the greatest cosmic blunder. Blender? What? Cosmic what? blender? Blunder? Yeah. Blender. Blunder. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Tune into... Tune into Chicago. Tune into tomorrow's show, streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com, or listen to the podcast uh, to be posted shortly after the same place. Finally, and I and I unfortunately really mean finally, if you are a long time listener, and I mean a real long time listener, like listening to This Is Hell since June 1999, when we would have wonderful weirdos on our show because it was kind of difficult to get guests, whatnot, like people who practiced. Garbology, the act of digging through somebody else's garbage to find metaphorical dirt on scam artists who are making millions off televangelism. You may remember a guest we had on from Texas's Trinity Church, a group of about 50 people who believed that Christianity after the first century ACE had been corrupted and it needed to return to its original roots. So yes, this group was literally radical in order to find the true meaning of the words of Jesus Christ. That guest was a man named Ole Anthony. As the New York Times is reporting today, Ole passed away on April 10th. His targets in his dumpster diving included televangelists like Robert Tilton, Benny Hinn, and W.V. Grant, and Ole found evidence of legal or spiritual fraud by all three. As the Times obit states, Ole Anthony's work was largely responsible for the implosion of Mr. Tilton's $80 million a year empire and Mr. Grant's 1996 imprisonment for tax evasion. In 2007, he worked with the U.S. Senate Finance Committee in its own investigation into televangelists, including Benny Hinn. That 2007 investigation into Hinn uh, didn't really 
I mean, they found some irregularities when it came to spending and that there was little financial oversight, but nothing was discovered. And Benny Hinn continues to annoy viewers who accidentally left whatever station he broadcasts on tuned in from the night before. Oli was 82, and Alex is checking now on our June 99 interview with Oli. If it is all in one piece and has good sound quality, we will be playing that interview on our Patreon podcast this Friday. Find out how weird our guests were when we started doing This Is Hell by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell and tuning into our Patreon podcast this Friday. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live stream, podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Thanks to Richard for producing. Thanks to Vincent Bevins, our guest. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guest. With my most sincere apologies, yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind, I am also a race and gender traitor. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.